Welcome to the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. Today's podcast, recorded on the 14th of March 2011, is one of a series of lectures given as part of our New Product Development module, taught on our Masters in Publishing course. The talk, introduced by Sheila Lambie, is by Michael Rogers and is titled Tales from Publishing, Persuasion and Cooperation. I'm delighted to welcome Michael Rogers, who's going to talk us through the big book. I've known Michael for many years, um, since I started... Many decades. Thank you, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Since uh, I started work in the trade publishing division of uh, Longman Group, and um, I, I had come straight from ELT, and Michael's first reaction was, as this little flippity gibbet who's been out there sunning herself in, in Greece thinks she can do with selling and marketing uh, my trade books, my popular science books, and my wonderful superstar books and authors. So it took a long time, many decades, uh, to convince Michael that uh, it might work. And uh, Michael is probably the best editor I've ever worked with. He's one of the very few editors that I allowed to come to my sales conference and do what they asked. Um, and he never let me down, and he always engaged the sales force, and they went out revitalized and energized to sell the hell out of his books. He's also known as the best editor in the world by various other people, uh, including one Richard Dawkins, I think, mm-hmm. um, and various other luminaries of the scientific world. So Mike is going to talk about uh, his particular field, which is science publishing, and he'll give you more details on that. But don't think of it about as science publishing, oh my goodness, that's going to be tough. Think about it as publishing, the role of the editor, and how the editor works uh, with other people in a publishing company to make the whole process work. So that's why he's called it Tales from Publishing, and Persuasion and Cooperation is the name of the game. Uh, There will be a handout, but it's not going to come out uh, and get into your little hands until uh, you've answered a few questions, the answers to which, of course, are on the slides. Okay? So, Michael, over to you. Thank you very much, Sheila. Hello, everyone. Um, First, uh, very briefly, um, my background, so you can sort of slot that into what I'm going to um, talk about. My background is actually in science. Um, I did a degree in chemistry. I did a PhD uh, and things like that. And thinking of a question I've heard over the years is, ah, so you've got that sort of solid science background. How important is it to um, have scientific qualifications if you're going to be a science editor? And the quick answer is, yes, yes, it matters. But the slow answer, when you think about it, is, no, it doesn't matter. I think far more important is having an instinct for what makes a good book, what makes a successful book that's going to sell. So I frankly don't think it really matters what one's background is at university. It's having that instinct for being an editor that's more important. I worked in my time for a variety of uh, publishing houses. I started at the OUP uh, at the end of the uh, 60s. 
Um, then I went to an American textbook publisher called W.H. Freeman, uh, but I was based in Oxford, um, where, where their UK office was. Um, I worked for uh, some years at Longman uh, in uh, Harlow. Um, I worked for part of the Holtzbrink group, who own Scientific American and W.H. Freeman, and I ran my own list from Oxford um, from that. And then finally, I went back after an 18-year absence to the um, OUP. Um, so a sort of a, a variety of publishing houses, some of them specializing in science, um, others like Longman and the OUP, science was actually a small part of what um, they uh, did. Uh, so there's more humanities and uh, so on. Um, so that's uh, my background. The, the final point is uh, Tales from Publishing, these are real stories about real books, and that for me is important. It's not sort of theory. Um, so the sorts of books that interested me over that career were um, popular science books, which were also known as trade science books, trade reference, which means reference books for the general reader, and an example of that, which I signed up and worked on, was the Oxford Companions of the Mind. Um, and then finally, textbooks, science uh, textbooks. So three sorts of books, and they all interested me, and they all sort of interweaved during my um, working as an editor, as a commissioning editor. So one of those is popular science or trade science. So I thought we might kick off with asking you, what do you think is the biggest ever selling popular science book? Shout out. The Origin of, Origin of Species, Darwin. Um, oh, nice suggestion. Uh, I suspect not, but it's a good suggestion. That's more of a textbook rather than a popular science book. Nice suggestion, um, but um, something else. A Brief History of Time, which is here. Um, this book was published in 1987 or 1988, and it famously became a publishing phenomenon. It went on to sell more than 10 million copies. It also became a part of popular culture, and there are references to it in mainstream movies, such as Legally Blonde, Donnie Darko, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, or however it's said. It's also, it features uh, in an episode of the television serial Lost. Um, so um, that's interesting. But also famously, it has very few readers. And most of those 10 million people threw in the towel after 10, 20, 30 pages. And so although it sold the most number of copies, it actually uh, has very few readers. People found it too tough. Um, about three years after it was published, uh, I was asked by John Durant, who 
was the UK's first ever professor of the public understanding of science. If I would explain why this book um, sold so well, but had so few readers, and also what the impact on, gen on popular science publishing in general was. And uh, John was um, about to uh, start up a new journal called Public Understanding of Science, and uh, I had to do my essay in time for the second issue. And the next uh, slide, um, there it is. So if anyone's interested in why we think the book sold so well, but had so few readers, and what the impact on the whole of trade science publishing was, then uh, I dealt with that in that uh, essay review. And at the end, if anyone's interested in, in sort of following us up, We'll give, you the, um, we'll give you the reference. So that's the biggest selling. What about suggestions for the most widely read popular science book? Any suggestions? I mean, I can't prove this, but I've got my own view. <laughs> and I think the next slide, it's that. Jim Watson's The Double Helix. This is one of the great stories of science in the 20th century. A wonderful tale which the science couldn't be more important, led to the founding of microbiology and so on, what genes are made of, how they work, um, and also a great human drama. You had basically um, two uh, pairs, uh, Watson and Crick, who were at Cambridge, the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, and also at King's College London, you had Maurice Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin. Um, Watson and Crick got on very well together. They were very different, but they got on very well together. Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin couldn't get on, and that inability to get on hampered their progress. And the climax of the tale is when Rosalind was an X-ray crystallographer and she took the most beautiful X-ray photograph of DNA. And, but because of the fraught relationship with Morris, she sort of kept this in her drawer and so on, not revealing it. Um, Morris discovered it and showed it, crucially, to Jim Watson when Jim was visiting King's. Uh, Rosalind didn't know. Um, and that was the trigger that led to Watson Crick, this double helix um, structure. Um, the Nobel Prize in 1962, I think it was, um, was awarded for the double helix. There are two things about the Nobel Prize. One is only a maximum of three people can be awarded one Nobel Prize, and number two, they can't be awarded posthumously. Rosalind Franklin tragically died in her thirties of ovarian cancer um, in 1958. So when the Nobel Prize came, that was no, but it led to a great campaign on behalf of women in science, women generally, that she had been treated rather shockingly, it was thought, 
and it became a great um, cause. And Morris Wilkins was the chief demon um, perceived by those um, people. Um, I actually published, towards the end of my uh, career, Morris Wilkins's autobiography, which I'll mention later in another um, context. So um, that um, is the double helix and the great story there. The BBC actually um, did a dramatization of the story, which went out in the late 80s. And as befits such a wonderful tale, um, they came up with a production for the top draw. They had Jeff Goldblum playing Jim Watson, Tim Piggott-Smith as Francis Crick, Alan Howard as Morris Wilkins, and Juliet Stevenson as um, Rosalind Franklin. Wonderful film. Um, now, The Double Helix was published a year before I came into publishing, so I certainly had nothing to do with it. But I did publish uh, Jim Watson's follow-up to The Double Helix, which is the next uh, slide, just for fun, Jeans, uh, Girls, and uh, Gamoff, which takes up the tale after The Double Helix, the book, um, finished. Right. Um, so... Um, Let's have the handouts. Oh, the handouts. Pause for a minute. Okay, while those are being uh, dished out, uh, I want to cut to um, this book, The Selfish Gene, um, by Richard Dawkins. Um, the Selfish Gene, the actual title has passed into the currency of the language. Um, at the time I started working on it, Richard Dawkins was completely unknown. This is his first um, book. And the sort of key um, elements to the story, hearing about it out of the blue, um, a note from one of the science delegates at the OUP who was a fellow of the same college as uh, Dawkins, New College, and wrote to me one day and said, uh, at lunch, one of the dons here uh, called Dawkins was talking about a book he's writing called The Selfish Gene. Uh, you might want to follow up on this. Um, so I contacted uh, Dawkins and eventually he got in touch and said, I've actually completed eight chapters in draft from the projected 11 chapters. I'll leave them at the Porter's Lodge for you to pick up on your way home one Friday. And uh, so I read um, the chapters. I was expecting, well, this might be an interesting read, and so it's certainly an intriguing title. Um, but I knew, one of the sort of great moments for an editor, I knew before I'd reached the bottom of the first page that I was on something special. Um, the wonderful writing with its wonderful rhythms, the great ideas, the giant ideas in biology, complicated but so well explained that you were carried along and you took in these great grand intellectual ideas. And then throughout, 
um, was this inexhaustible supply of tales from animal behaviour, um, which were absolutely wanted to bring the whole thing to life. So I knew at the end that, yes, this had captured my imagination uh, and uh, all that. But as an editor, I knew something else, having read those chapters, that here was something that was going to make waves. Here was a book that was going to sell. So I knew that. And so then um, it was a question of losing sleep, a combination of excitement and also worry, because I knew that Dawkins had also shown it to a famous editor in a famous London trade house, Tom Mashler at Jonathan Cape. And I was so worried about losing it. Arranged to have lunch with Dawkins later that um, week. And um, if you're genuinely enthusiastic about something, you can't invent this. But if you are, then I think that's very important in trying to persuade somebody. The OUP had had a reputation in the past of not being very good at uh, trade books, general audience books. And so I tried to persuade him, things have changed. We can do this uh, book justice. Um, then I brought in uh, our trade marketing manager, who was at the London office, John Lord, and asked him to join us the following week to try and persuade Dawkins to come with us. Um, it was a nice tale. It's, um, John, uh, John Lord, like Dawkins, had read zoology at Oxford. And there came the revelation, and I had no idea about this, um, that Dawkins had come up to take the entrance exam to Oxford from school. And he'd come without his instruments to do the practical exam. And so an undergraduate in the same college was found who could lend him his instruments. And that undergraduate was John Lord. I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, I don't think that played any part in persuading Dawkins, but he did uh, after that lunch with, with uh, John Lord and me uh, to come to the um, OUP. Um, the extent was something like 65,000 words. So I already worked out in my mind what I'd like. We'll put that into with reasonably big type so that people can find it easy to read. Doesn't look threatening. A couple of hundred pages. We'll publish it in hardback. And a price of, this might astonish you now, but this was 1976. Um, £2.95. Normally, hardbacks at that time were about £3.50. I want to go below that, two ninety-five, just a hardback price to encourage the maximum uh, sale, and that I thought would have a paperback in maybe eighteen months' time to maximise the chance of the hardback uh, doing well. So that was my plan, which I discussed with um, with um, John Lord. Um, OUP is international, and I wanted this book to sell in America, in Canada, in Australia, in South Africa, and so on and so on. And back to the point about you can't invent enthusiasm, you've got to feel it. But if you do, then use it. 
and um, the branch managers around the world, the OUP, would find out about this in the routine way, but I didn't want them to find out the routine way. I want to flag it now. This is important. Um, Desmond Morris, who'd been advising Richard Dawkins, had told him, when you place this book, you want to find a publisher who is going to push it so hard that eventually it'll get talked about. Um, well, I was doing a version of that, but not for that reason. For me, this was a spontaneous outburst. Uh, I've been swept off my feet by this book, having read those uh, eight chapters. And uh, I think on the next slide, yes, have a read of that. Um, this was part of my letter to the branch managers around the world. Uh, and so this was my attempt at the time to make people sit up um, and take notice. So that was spontaneous. Um, proofs went out and so that people could actually judge for themselves. And um, in due course, the manager of the Australia branch wrote, uh, so having seen that and then seen the uh, proofs and uh, it both astonished me and also rather touched me. The manager said we'd like a quote for this to us staggering quantity, this is an unknown author and so on, for Australia of 3,000 copies. He said please tell us if you think we are mad. Um, well they weren't mad and they got their 3,000 and they sold them. Um, so that was trying to get people um, switched on. Okay, what's next? The title was a bit of an issue. Um, some colleagues thought that having gene in the singular, the selfish gene, it somehow implied a rogue gene amongst a population of normal ones, which of course isn't the case. And so the suggestion was, well, what about the selfish genes or our selfish genes? Also, Dawkins had asked various people he knew to suggest a title for his book, and Desmond Morris had come up with The Gene Machine. A lot of people thought, that's a really great title it's more sellable than the selfish gene. I didn't think so. Um, to me, the original the selfish gene, I mean, I loved it from the time I saw it from that letter from the uh, science delegate back in the February. And for me, it had a sort of a brooding presence. And you might think this is fanciful, but occasionally I would see it appearing on a screen as if it was the title of a film accompanied at the same instant by, if you know the overture to Mozart's Don Giovanni, it starts with this terrifying doom-laden chord, and I saw that playing as the selfish gene appeared. So uh, I loved it, but it meant persuading people and having to talk people out of the gene machine. Yes, it's a nice title, but it doesn't communicate what the book is about. The book was about 
explaining animal behavior using the assumption that genes act as if, as if, because they're not alive, as if they were selfish. And the gene machine is neutral. It doesn't communicate that, the selfish gene are so. Um, thankfully, um, that one we had, and uh, I still think it's the best title. Okay. Um, there's also pressure to have illustrations, um, and particularly sales reps, oh, let's have pictures in it. It'll sell even better. And again, I thought they were wrong. When I read it in TypeScript, for me, it was like reading a novel, a thriller. It was so exciting, turning the pages, and I thought having pictures would dilute that impact. So again, we had some arguments, but um, sanity prevails, and um, we, um, we did without. Um, we, did, we did without them. And I, again, I think that was the right decision. It's like reading a novel. It's so exciting. Okay. Um, the BBC decided to do a Horizon program um, on, the, um, on the selfish gene. Um, John Lord, Martin Cowell, who was the home um, sales manager, and I went to BBC Television Centre for an advance showing of the film. It was the beginning of October. And um, it was going out, uh, being transmitted in early November. And the reason we went to see it was, should we put a reprint in before publication? And this is a familiar problem. Um, when something's going to happen around publication, and it might affect the sales in a dramatic way, you need to organize things before the book is published, before you know. Because if you don't, you'll sell out, you'll be out of stock in the warehouse at the crucial time when interest has been raised. But if you get it wrong, you say, oh, God, yes, let's reprint, and so on and the thing doesn't affect it in that way, then you're stuck with unsold stock in the warehouse. So it's a bit of a nice problem deciding what to do. So John Martin and I saw the film, came out, and we were going our separate ways, but we got into Martin's car, and we drove around Shepherd's Bush to decide, shall we reprint? We came back to our starting place. We hadn't, no, don't know yet. John Lord, drive around Shepherd's Bush again. So we drove around again, and we agonized. We came back, and we still hadn't decided. We went around a third time. And finally, we decided, yes, it is going to have an effect, uh, a big effect. So we'll reprint another 5,000 or whatever it was in those uh, days. And um, it turned out to be the right decision, uh, because the book took off, uh, especially after the, um, the television um, um, program. Um, one slightly annoying thing was that on the other channel, on the other BBC channel, 
was the ghastly Royal Variety Show. And um, this doubtless drew uh, some viewers uh, from this horizon on the um, selfish gene. But afterwards, um, the BBC told us that the um, audience measured for this program was one and a half million. Actually quite low, quite low for a Horizon program. Um, and the interesting thing uh, here is that it was the title. And the BBC said, you know, with hindsight and all that, we had our time again, having Gene in a title implies a program that's going to be about laboratories and microscopes and whatnot, hard science. And they thought that that was the reason for the lower than usual audience figure. But having that title was, of course, absolutely perfect for the book, uh, The Selfish Gene. So we were very, very pleased with that, uh, despite that lowish audience. Okay. Now, um, another Dawkins book, The Blind Watchmaker. Uh, by this time, I'd um, moved to Longman. Were you there then? I was. <laughs> um, and I knew about this book before I went to Longman. I talked to Richard about it. A major trade book, certainly on the science side, hadn't been done before by uh, Longman. And so a first task, so back to my sort of subtitle of persuasion and cooperation, was having to persuade the sales and the marketing people that, yes, we can do this, we're up to it. Having done that, I then had to persuade Richard's literary agent, whom I knew. I rang her, she said, oh, a bit doubtful about this, Michael. Are Longman really up to this sort of thing? But yes, we'll have lunch, and uh, you can make your pitch. So we had lunch, and at the end, she delivered her verdict. Yes, Longman could be allowed to enter the competition. It was going out for auction later that um, autumn. Um, and um, so next, a case of having to one would need a royalty advance to be offered with the, um, the offer. Uh, and so again, back to cooperation persuasion, it was a case of persuading one's boss that this book is worth a lot of money as a royalty advance. And the literary agent, Carolyn Dorney, um, had stipulated that uh, she wanted both a hardback and a subsequent paperback as a total deal. And a sister company of Longman, owned by Pearson, was Penguin, which I thought was excellent for the uh, book, because uh, Penguin, great publisher. And so a case of getting in touch with uh, Penguin's science editor, talking to him, yes, delighted to be involved. He'd talked to his chief about how much money they could come up with. And eventually, there was the auction. Um, which was a nerve-jangling affair lasting about four hours. It was due to start at noon, and about three seconds after noon, Carolyn rang me and uh, said, um, OK, Michael, various things you'll need to change, improve, please. 
technical things, uh, not very important, yes, fine. And you really will have to come up with more money. Put the phone down. So then I had to ring my boss, who was in Edinburgh that day. Oh, God, is it really worth it? Persuade me now. Um, is it worth more money? Yes, it was. Ringing Penguin, he would have to talk to his chief. He came back to me eventually. Yes, we can come up with more money, but this is absolutely our last word. So ringing the agent with our new offer. And at the end of the afternoon, she rang and said Longman had won and we got the book. So that was great, uh, if tense at the time. Uh, once again, as with the selfish gene, um, there was great pressure from the, particularly the sales uh, people, about having illustrations. And again, I resisted for the same reason. It's just as wonderful a read as the selfish gene. Um, we don't need pictures. It'll dilute the impact. But I was leaned on. And eventually, an artist called Liz Pyle uh, suggested that she should, rather than illustrations about what was technical points in the book, but that she, Liz, should come up with some line drawings that would act as frontispieces for each of the chapters, and that each of these drawings, rather than illustrating some technical point, would communicate the spirit, the atmosphere of that chapter. And as soon as I saw the first trial ones, I was won over. And here is the one, to give you a feeling, um, this was the frontispiece proper. Um, and you can see, so powerfully atmospheric, and in my view then, and still is, uh, wholly in keeping and worthy of the uh, book. Are there, yes. um, here's um, one of the uh, chapter openings. Um, I think the chapter's called something like Spirals and Explosions or something like that. So again, capturing the spirit um, of that um, chapter. So uh, that really did enhance the appeal of the book, and I was very pleased. Um, we were on the point of asking Liz Pyle to come up with an illustration for the jacket. What's next? And Richard Dawkins rang me and said, Desmond Morris is so intrigued by the title, The Blind Watchmaker, he's done a painting uh, called The Blind Watchmaker. Would I like to come over to Oxford to have a look with a view to it's being used as the jacket? Desmond Morris's picture appeared on the selfish gene, so I mean that goes back to with that. He was a surrealist painter as a hobby, Desmond Morris, and uh, inspired by biological shapes and ideas. Um, at this point, again, something you come up with in publishing houses uh, and people's territory and trespassing on people's territory and so on, the head of design was outraged that we should be considering this. This was their territory. Um, because we wanted to use Desmond Morris's picture. And the only way, after calming him down, how dare I, and uh, so on, the only way of calming him down and persuading him 
was that the sales reps to a man and woman all said, it's not just it's a great picture, but what a tale we can tell the booksellers when we're subscribing this book, when we're going around taking advance orders. It's a great story, Desmond Morris being inspired by the title and doing this painting. And that is worth a great deal in persuading booksellers to take substantial quantities. Um, so that's how we got out of that one. Penguin, who did the subsequent um, paperback, uh, also used the um, same picture. So it became as famous as that selfish gene, the other uh, Desmond Morris um, um, painting. Um, yes, branding issues. At the time, um, in the year or so before The Blind Watchmaker was published, um, the university division at Longman was going to rebrand their science publishing, their science and technical publishing, and they were going to um, launch a new imprint called Longman Scientific and Technical. Dead boring, but there you are, you have to put up with these things. Uh, and the management were very enthusiastic about this. But even more so, they said, we can use the blind watchmaker as our spearhead to launch this imprint. And I was extremely nervous about their saddling my great book, Blind Watchmaker, with this dead, boring, longman scientific and technical, making it sound scientific and technical. But there were trade-offs, and uh, the point was put to me, if we do this, there'll be a much bigger promotion spend on the book, because we'll be taking it from the monies which have been earmarked for launching the new uh, imprint. So I decided, okay, um, I'll go with that. Uh, so um, we went ahead. Uh, I don't think the book actually suffered at all, but it got a great, um, a great uh, marking spend on it. So sometimes you've got to be uh, pragmatic. Um, just to um, keep that slide there, but just to wind up on that, um, Longman surprised many, both inside and outside the house, on the sales of the blind watchmaker. Uh, the subscription, that is the advance orders taken by the reps ahead of publication in the UK, was over 17,000 copies. And when you compare that with, it was published in America by W.W. W. Norton, and Norton's total sale for North America of the hardback before they did their own paperback was 18,000 copies. So Longman's subscription for the UK was almost that. And Longman went on to sell 25,000 hardbacks. Penguin were screaming to be allowed to do their paperback early. And I was resisted that. Absolutely not. The book's selling in hardback. No, you will wait. That was the agreement. And so they had to wait for the 18 months. Um, OK. So we're now moving to um, a um, textbook, one of my other great remarks. And this is the first edition of Atkins' Physical Chemistry. Um, so we're back to um, the OUP. The OUP had published 
uh, in the early 70s a series of chemistry textbooks, single volumes, 100 pages uh, each. Um, and that was very exhilarating at the time. Um, series. Um, and um, not surprisingly, inexperienced editors love series. Why? What's so great about series? I think, um, from the point of view of a commissioning editor, um, it's very exciting. And you have series editors, academics, who are coming up with ideas for uh, titles. And you seem to be making a lot of progress very quickly as you sign things up. And so there's that excitement of um, progress. Um, but a disadvantage is that you're actually ceding control, a lot of control, to those series editors. And you, the editor, aren't as in control about, well, she'll be doing a book on that, really? <coughs> yes, as the editor, and you sort of go along with it. So you're losing that sort of control. But also, to your point um, earlier, um, is what we in the science department at the time called the small grosser problem. And the small grosser problem is that a small corner bookshop, uh, bookshop grocer, sells lots and lots of different items quite cheaply. So you're scratching a living by selling lots of things quite cheap. Uh, you're going to really work hard um, to make a living uh, that way. And so the opposite of a series of 100-page books is one big book. And um, that was uh, my aspiration at the time, uh, that we should uh, go for one big one rather than lots and lots of small grosser ones. So what's next? God. Um, in the summer before um, this book was actually published in the beginning of 78, a group of academic booksellers uh, was invited to the OUP Summer Sales Conference. So this would be 1977. And I'd been asked to deliver a short talk telling the story of this new textbook that was about to be published in six months' time. And in my opening sentence to these academic book uh, sellers, um, I said that um, the first sign I had that there was a need for this book was on Tuesday the 17th of February, 1970, at 4.20 p.m. I wanted to keep the mood light and I suspected that this sort of precision would be taken as tongue-in-cheek invention, but actually, give or take five minutes, it was dead on. I didn't know it at the time, and I pieced together the story later, that it was the beginning of the story, I didn't know it at the time. But I was talking to an academic, and he said, you know, we're, all, we're fed up of uh, the existing physical chemistry textbooks. Um, many people said the same over the years, but that was the first. And actually asking the author, again to the, my talk, uh, asking the author on Monday the 10th of December, 73, at 5 past 7. Again, give or take a few minutes, that was actually spot on. Uh, I was having dinner with Peter Atkins, and um, 
I'd seen something he'd written reviewing uh, a proposal, and I decided on the basis of that he ought to be the one writing a physical chemistry textbook. And so that's why I popped the question then. Uh, so next we have... Uh, I bought in all the competition, maybe sort of the six or seven competing texts, and asked Peter to read them all cover to cover. I mean, these were substantial tomes. Um, and um, we analysed the competition in that way. And we were able to say, by the way, uh, a convention of science textbooks is you never ever refer to them by, by their titles because they're all called the same thing. They're all called physical chemistry. You always call them by their authors' names. And uh, so these listed here uh, were the ones in existence then. And um, Peter graded them according to difficulty. Moore was the most demanding from the point of view of the students. Danis and Alberti, uh, the least demanding. Um, and he decided to position the one we were going to do somewhere in the middle. I don't think because it was in the middle. Was, it, that was his natural sort of instinct of where it ought to be. Um, so that was uh, that. Um, and phase one, he was going to write uh, three specimen chapters and a contents list, and we'll be sending this out for review. So in other words, to academics who taught the course to see if they thought, yes, this is just what we want. And the result was absolute, utter, utter failure. Um, all the reviews came back, and uh, everyone said, you've got two things really wrong. The writing is far too um, informal and chatty. And secondly, the mathematical level is far too low. No. And um, academic reviewers tend to be quite blunt, quite rude when they're writing about things. And so some of these things were quite hurtful. Many an author might have been put off then, but uh, Peter wasn't. We met for lunch to decide what to do, and I judged it was one of those occasions when it would be worth getting a second bottle of the red wine we were drinking, <laughs> and we went on. And eventually, he was going to completely revise them, uh, and we'd start again. So next, um, those chapters were sent out, and the result was ambiguous. Um, somebody said, no, don't go on. One said, there might just be something there. You should press on. And two of the reviewers sat on the friends. So it was a bit... Um, so we then realised that nobody was going to predict success on the basis of 10%. We're going to be about 30 chapters on the basis of just um, three chapters. So Peter decided he would write 22, and that was there were going to be three sections, and the 22 chapters were the first two sections, the three sections. And um, I'd got in touch with an American co-publisher, W.H. Freeman, and they said, well, we're sceptical because no one ever before in the history of the universe from the UK has ever written a textbook that could succeed in the American college market. That was a received. Everyone knew that. 
So we were going against that tide. So Freeman in San Francisco said, um, okay, we'll have them reviewed, your 22 chapters, but we're a bit skeptical. They were reviewed and huge enthusiasm from reviewers in America. Um, and it was then, and only then, that we signed up the book. So Peter did all this in faith um, before any commitment. Um, and uh, it was published, as I said earlier, January 1978. A January is the best time to publish a textbook because it gives you maximum time to promote it, sending out complimentary copies to academics for the season starting the following October, the term, the session then. And you have the, that year on the copyright page for a whole year. So January is the best time. And that's what we um, did. Um, so um, eight English language editions. One came out every four years from then on. So that was in the beginning of Peter's labors. Um, each new edition sold more than the previous one. Um, and it sold about three quarters of a million copies. So for an advanced textbook, that's pretty good. It became, and it still is, the leading, the best-selling physical chemistry textbook in the world. And it has been for 30-odd years. And the reason for that is that with each new edition, Peter went to enormous trouble um, um, with each revision. And 17 translations. The German translation outsells the German domestic PCHEM texts. So a measure of success. What's next? Um, yeah, so you can tell that first hint was in 1970, asking him at the end of 1973, publishing at the beginning of 78. Um, so I don't mind admitting, for me, it was a bit of a worrying time. What if it didn't work out? Because I'd invested so much in it, time and uh, all that. Um, but it's nice when it does uh, work. And I was given the freedom to do it. I'm not sure whether you'd get that freedom today um, with the sort of climate of micromanagement and uh, all the rest of it. But in those days, I was fortunate. It was a worrying time, but I did have the freedom to pursue it. Okay. Okay, so we're talking about uh, titles um, now. Marion Dawkins, who was Richard Dawkins' first wife, and uh, I'd known her since the 1970s when I knew Richard working on the selfish gene. Um, and she, like Richard, was in the zoology department, still is, uh, at um, Oxford. And I was now at Longman, and she wanted to write a textbook which would... She was a very clear writer, a very patient expositor, and she wanted to write a book, Animal Behavior, the technical name for which is Ethology, those areas which students traditionally found difficult. And so we gave it the working title, Stumbling Blocks in Ethology, a very clunky title. But we knew that, and we were convinced when the time came we'd be inspired and come up with a more suitable, sellable title. But as the writing approached completion, um, this wasn't the case. And so Marion posted a notice on her notice board at the zoology department in Oxford, um, offering a bottle of champagne 
describing the book, offering a bottle of champagne to anybody who could come up with a, a good title. And the winner, surprise, surprise, was Richard Dawkins. And his suggestion was unraveling animal behavior. And a nice um, feature about this is that the design people at Longman produced this cover with these intertwining, or so they appear, swan's necks, which is lovely and uh, all in keeping with that um, title. Um, okay. So we're going, to, we're going to ask you to do some quick-fire thinking. So instead of giving you time to do this, because we're, we're running a little short of time, uh, we want you to have your thinking caps on and unravel some of these titles to make them more punchy and appropriate. All right, this was a book I inherited in the 70s at the press. It was a book of case studies from Oxfam, and each case study explained a real story uh, from the third world where a farmer um, in poverty uh, would work all hours uh, that God sent, as they say, to earn just enough to keep his family. If only he could have, like, a tractor or something like that, he could increase his output tenfold, be able to feed his family and also earn more. And so these were examples of just that. And we had to come up with a title. Um, I mean, if you call it Inspiring Oxfam Case Studies, that is not a good selling title. Um, I mentioned this at an editorial meeting, and um, a colleague came back after thinking about it with a title we actually used. So, and I was stumped. The brilliant title she came up with was, it's a nice title, Growing Out of Poverty. Nice title. So I was happy with that. Okay. Now, chemicals have a dreadful reputation. People feel threatened by them, even though, perversely, they are the basis of our comfortable modern life. Chemicals. I was in a supermarket not long after seeing John for the first time, and there's a woman there next to me looking at these various brands of food in a can. And she went back empty-handed to her brood and said loudly, none, they all have chemicals. Well, she can't have meant chemicals. Everything in the universe is made of chemicals. I think what she meant was additives. But chemistry had a bad reputation, and John wanted to um, uh, write a book that would make the case for Chemicals, you know, they're, they're nice. They make life easy. Um, Morris Wilkins's autobiography, I mentioned uh, earlier, Morris worked with Rosalind Franklin and all that and got a Nobel Prize with Crick and Watson for the double helix. Oxford Book of Scientific Anecdotes, one of my favorite all-time books. Love it. Uh, great anecdotes um, written by Walter uh, Gratzer. That is what we call a reference title. Um, what is needed is a trade title. Um, so the Oxford Book of Scientific is reference, boring. Let's have a trade title. And much the same for the Oxford Guide to Modern Science, which I signed up with Nigel Calder, famous uh, writer. And uh, this was to be an A to Z book, but not in the conventional sense. Each entry was to be a story, a readable story, cutting across different sorts of science. And again, the Oxford Guide to Modern Science 
is a reference title, boring. We needed a um, um, trade title. So those are the ones. Um, this is a history of proteins. Um, note having a trade title, not a history of proteins, boring title, academic title, nature's robots, a trade title. Um, the chief of marketing at the AUP said, oh, what a pretty picture in the book. Let's have that. It's actually dead boring, but I was too meek in those days to um, stand up. And, uh, but um, it's boring. When we did the paperback, I had a bit more to say in those days. And using that, the human dimension. Uh, and I think that works much better um, on the paperback. Okay. Um, oxygen, brilliant book. Um, oxygen is about the way that gas drove evolution from the beginnings of life, um, how it led to the origin of photosynthesis, how it led to the sudden appearance of animals, how it led to the need to have two sexes, right up to today with diseases, aging, and all the rest of it, why Dolly the sheep aged prematurely, that sort of thing. Massive, great canvas. And my colleagues said, how about this? Bubbles. And I said, absolutely not. You will saddle the book with, because people will think it's about a boring molecule called oxygen. It looks like a school textbook on oxygen. I had one idea, which we presented, uh, which was of a dragonfly, a fossilized dragonfly, because it's part of the story, because I'd read the thing. 20 people in the meeting all voted for that. And I voted for the other one, which was that. But I finally got my own way. Uh, so that was a better one. Um, right. Um, my final piece of advice uh, for uh, publishing, something I learned right at the beginning. Every meeting I ever had, I would write a minute, a file copy of what had been discussed, how it had gone, what had been decided, and so on. And it's something that stayed with me as a habit through all my 35 years in publishing. And uh, it's a great thing to have, that discipline. Um, oh, here is that Public Understanding of Science uh, journal um, reference, if you're interested in A Brief History of Time, why it sells so well, how it affected trade science publishing in general. That's it, the end, thank you. <laughs>